0: Welcome to the Money, Mind, and Meaning podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Thank you so much for being here with me this morning. Um, As always, there's a couple of ways you can help out the podcast if you're enjoying what you're hearing here. Uh, First is to make me $3 richer uh, by going to buy a copy of The Laws of Wealth, Psychology and the Secret to Investing Success uh, on Amazon. If you've already picked up a copy of that and loved it, you can review it uh, or pick up a pre-order of my new book, The Behavioral Investor. And then finally, a big thank you to everyone who has left a positive review on Apple Podcasts or shared to help other people find the podcast. So today we're going to be talking about financial bubbles. And there's been a ton of talk about this lately with the recent market volatility. Uh, There's also been some funny stuff happening with tea and other beverage companies going into the cryptocurrency world, changing their name, and and seeing a dramatic spike in the stock price. Uh, This is hardly the first time this has happened. At the height of the dot-com boom, the stock of a stodgy computer literacy, Inc., Uh, rose by 33% in a single day simply by changing their name to fatbrain.com, taking advantage of the dot-com mania at the time. Even better still is the tale of Manatech Incorporated, whose share shot up 368% in the first two days following their IPO. So tech-crazed investors, which were really more like speculators, were keen to invest in anything to do with the internet, and a company called Manatech really sounded like a, a cutting-edge technology firm. So the only problem was that Manatech makes laxatives. So, these two stories may sound like aberrations that I cherry pick to prove a point, uh, but in the run-up to the NASDAQ crash of the turn of the century, companies that changed their name to include some mention of the internet outperformed others by 63%. So in theory, a stock is as valuable as its discounted future profits, right? You learn that in your business classes, but in reality, Something as silly as a name change can have a dramatic impact. It's in the best interest of all of you, all of us, behavioral investors that errors like this exist because they are sources for potential outperformance. However, the very same human frailties that give life to behavioral arbitrage opportunities give birth to the wealth-destroying realities of bubbles, panics, and crashes. So we have two jobs as behaviorally minded investors and those two jobs are to exploit error and to avoid terror. So we'll talk about those things today. So it's a tribute to the enduring human nature of of human irrationality in markets that bubbles have actually existed since before the development of organized stock exchanges. So in 15th century Germany, a fractional interest in silver mine called kooks were traded and even purchased on credit. As we read in Value Walk, quote, transactions were settled at financial fairs during which share prices could fluctuate dramatically. These were famously condemned by Martin Luther in 1554 uh, when he said, I'm not going to try the German there, said, I will have nothing to do with kooksen. They are play money and will not generate hard cash. Sound familiar? One generation after the Cook's Bubble, the Dutch Golden Age gave rise to the Tulip Bubble, where a single bulb traded for as much as a townhome in some instances. But living through a bubble seems to do very little to inoculate the coming generation against similar mistakes. The IMF reports that bubbles are now regarded as a recurrent feature of modern economic history and cites 23 instances of stock market bubbles in just the U.S. and U.K. uh, between 1800 and 1940. 23 bubbles in the U.S. and Great Britain between 1800 and 1940. Bubbles have been and likely always will be with us. And so as investors, we can't ignore these. We do so at our own peril. So it makes sense that bubbles occur in financial markets fraught with uncertainty like the ones that we, uh, that we trade in every day. But Vernon Smith and his co-authors actually found that bubbles seem to occur naturally, even in markets with well-defined prices and a finite time horizon. Smith and company gave subjects some money, let them trade a financial asset whose fundamental value was well known. That is, it was equal to the expected dividends that it paid over a clearly defined period of time. What's fascinating to me is that even in this controlled setting, prices rose well above true value, only to come crashing down near the end of the time horizon. A great deal of work has gone into trying to replicate the results of Smith's study, and determine whether the findings are robust to various markets and market participants. Experienced traders, those who had played Smith's game before, learn to extinguish bubbles with repeated practice, but form the bubbles once again as soon as the valuation numbers change. The simulated market has been, has been run allowing short selling, using different kinds of markets, with a variety of rules, and in all conditions, every single condition, bubbles occur. A Harvard study sought to replicate Smith's work with one important departure. There was no ability to speculate and no greater fool to whom inflated assets could be passed on. Even in this bumper, kid-gloved simulation, you guessed it. Bubbles and crashes occurred. As this study reports, The results suggest that the departures from fundamental values are not caused by the lack of common knowledge of rationality leading to speculation, but rather by behavior that itself exhibits elements of irrationality. So even in markets artificially constrained in ways that ours never will be, error and terror are everywhere. So Dr. Robert Schiller, Nobel Laureate in Economics, suggests that bubbles can be diagnosed using a checklist in much the same manner that a psychologist would examine the mental health of a patient against the diagnostic criteria for a given mental illness. So here are Schiller's sort of checklist. Here's Schiller's sort of checklist uh, for whether or not we're in a bubble. So think about where we are in the current market Or think about different asset classes and think about how you think we stack up. So the first is, have asset prices increased sharply? Second is, is there public excitement about these price increases? Next, has there been an accompanying media frenzy? Next, are there envy-inducing stories of common people striking it rich? Is there a growing interest in the asset class among the general public? Do new era theories seek to justify steep valuations? And finally, have lending standards declined? Now, it's interesting to take this handful, uh, two handfuls of diagnostic criteria and apply them to things like cryptocurrency or even the equity market uh, as they stand today. I'll let you draw your own conclusions there, but I like Schiller's idea of having this checklist. So while Schiller's efforts to create diagnostic criteria for bubbles is laudable, the fact is that no two are exactly alike. Now sure, they have some common features like inflated asset values, but what happens next, which is all that matters for you or I, is far less predictable. So in pathbreaking work on the nature of bubbles, uh, Greenwood, Schleifer, and you, in a work called Bubbles for Pharma, share some fascinating insights. Among the most compelling is that only a slight majority of bubbles actually burst. The researchers identify 40 bubbles, which they define as a 100% run-up in two years or less, from 1928 to present, but note that just over half crashed which they define as a 40% loss over two years or less. But among those bubbles that eventually did burst, the damage was swift and far-reaching. So to quote the paper, In 17 of the 21 episodes in which there is a crash, the industry experiences a single month return of negative 20% or worse during the drawdown period. So even more fascinating was that the size of the crash was largely commensurate with the size of the run-up. Dramatic increases in price tended to lead to more dramatic drawdowns. So as Michael Batnick writes in his summary of their research, if shares in an industry increased by 50%, the probability of a crash over the next two years is just 20%. A 100% return increased the odds of a crash to 53%, And a 150% return increased the odds of a crash to 80%. So what's the takeaway here? Only about half of all bubbles burst, but when they do, watch out. So as a child in Sunday school, I was taught that the devil was dangerous, not because he was conspicuously evil, but because he was a master of seductive half-truths. Likewise, it can be said that nearly every bubble begins with a grain of truth. It is only when that truth becomes distorted through human narrative that the danger is made manifest. It's absolutely true that the internet changed our lives and revolutionized the way that the world does business. The untruth was that any company with a dot-com after their name would be party to that revolution. Bubbles are born and die on fundamentals but are fueled by our need to create stories all along the way. And the process typically goes something like this. First, we have price price gains that occur for fundamental reasons. Next, those gains attract attention. A narrative emerges to explain those gains. The positive narrative begets a cascade of increased price and volume. And then finally, the narrative is broken, causing a return more or less to fundamentals. Robert Schiller defines bubbles as, quote, a social epidemic where price increases lead to further price increases, and stories are the means by which a spark of fundamental value becomes a raging fire of irrationality. Teeter and Sandberg speak to the power of story to create and sustain bubbles in the aptly named Cracking the Enigma of Asset Bubbles with Narratives, and cite three specific reasons why narrative is so powerful. First, asset bubbles typically form around new ideas or innovations for which there is limited historical precedent. This being the case, historical measures of fair value are either non-existent or seen as not being directly applicable. In the absence of historical data, story rules. Second, bubbles tend to occur during periods of loose regulation and easy credit, and the euphoria of such environments privileges story over analysis. Finally, in a high-speed world with a glut of investment opportunities, our ability to process each possible offering is diminished by the sheer complexity, number, and speed of what is on offer to us. In this noisy environment, story offers a welcome respite from the more tedious and cognitively taxing labors of quantitative due diligence. Stories help us make sense in the absence of data and provide quick and dirty approximations of value. But what happens when the story changes? In a very real sense, it's a scary proposition to entrust your hard-earned wealth to a market insane enough to drive a laxative company into the stratosphere simply for putting tech in their name. Likewise, understanding the frequency and severity of bubbles, panics, and crashes can make even the, most steely, even the steeliest investor want to hide his or her money in the backyard. But just as surely as knowledge of error and terror are a pre- prerequisite to successful investment management, they cannot be allowed to become all-consuming distractions that lead investors to become overly pessimistic. The market has long punished pessimism, and it's a truism that just because the market is crazy, it doesn't make you a shrink. As William Goetzman of Yale points out, only about 1 in 10 booms go bust. The market is more likely to double again than crash after a 100% gain in three years' time. And he goes on to say, placing a large weight on avoiding a bubble or misunderstanding the frequency of a crash following a boom is dangerous for the long-term investor. Ben Carlson makes some of these points in a very understandable way in his great uh, piece called Crash Rules Everything Around Me. He writes, U.S. stocks rose 400% in the 80s, but all we can talk about is the 1987 crash. Bonds gave investors a total return of 100% in the 90s, but we focus on the interest rate spike of 94. Emerging market stocks rose 185% in the 90s, but we live in fear of the 97 emerging market currency crisis. Being a behavioral investor means being respectful of and aware of bubbles and crashes, but not being paralyzed by that knowledge. The only insanity greater than not insulating yourself against wealth-destroying crashes is becoming so fearful of them that you miss out on all the good that financial markets do. So I hope that in a time of great equity market volatility and Bitcoin and other crypto frenzy, this has been an instructive primer for you. Uh, If you like this podcast again, please support it by pre-ordering The Behavioral Investor, uh, by ordering The Laws of Wealth, or by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks again. This has been Money, Mind, and Meaning. I'm Dr. Daniel Crosby.